Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Back quicker than usual this week. Got another bonus episode for you this week. I actually had a conversation the other day with John Schmelk from WFAN, the host of the Bank Shot podcast. We talked some Knicks. We talked some Giants. That conversation with John is coming up in just a bit. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill. We're offering my thoughts into what the Jets should do as the trade deadline approaches. After a disastrous performance on Monday Night Football, trade deadline coming up. I think the Jets should be active. Check out what I would do in the two-minute drill. But we'll get it rolling with this week's opening tip, where I offer my concerns with the direction this Mets managerial search is going. That's coming up right after this. I, I'm just completely aggravated. I got to tell you, bro. I mean, what, what are the Mets doing? And, and not only did they, did they not hire the obvious guy and a guy that basically the entire fan base wanted to be the man, to manage the team, but they lose him to a division rival. All right, we are back this opening tip. And some news here as I am recording this on Thursday morning. Joe Girardi will not be the manager of the New York Mets. He will instead be the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. My top target, I feel like 95% of Mets Twitter's top target to be the manager, has been hired by the Phillies to be their new skipper, replacing Gabe Kapler. And the Mets search, still ongoing. And a couple of developments I noted earlier in the week on our blog post about the this situation. The things that are coming out of the Mets camp right now are alarming to me. I get they want to be thorough. I get they wanted to make sure they have the right guy. But a couple of things are coming out of here that are scaring the hell out of me in terms of this process. Number one was first the idea that John Heyman tweeted out on Monday. And Heyman, as we've seen over the years, is pretty well connected to the Met hierarchy. The theory that the Mets put out there is that they were going to go through their process and that they would not be rushed to hire someone. This reading between the lines to you was very clear at the time, was they're not hiring Joe Girardi. If they wanted Joe, they would have done it immediately. The fact that they are going so long and they put it out there that they did not want to be rushed and that they would not be rushed and they would go through their process, to me was code that they never wanted to hire Girardi. And Girardi would have been a perfect fit for this job. He's one in this market. He's good with the media. He knows how to manage a bullpen, which has been a huge problem for this franchise last year. They didn't have any interest in him. And by putting that statement out there through Heyman, they basically were begging the Phillies to hire Girardi for them. So they could look out there like, oh, gee, we interviewed Girardi, but the Phillies hired him before we could. So they're basically half-assing this and trying to convince their fan base, you know what, he was on our list, we were interested in him, but someone hired him. We'll have to hire somebody else. Oh, well. Don't buy it. Mets fans are not idiots. They can sense baloney. They know the Mets had no intention of hiring Joe Girardi. And whether it comes down to a financial issue, which again has been heavily speculated because now the only guys in their list are first-time candidates. They never talked to Buck Showalter. They never talked to Dusty Baker. They are looking for a first-time manager again, which this is not to say a first-time manager can be bad. We've talked about this before. With last this year, eight of the ten teams in the playoffs had first time managers. If you hire the right guy, it shouldn't matter. But if they chose not to hire Girardi because they are being cheap, shame on them. 
because I'm curious to see what kind of contract Girardi gets in the Phillies, but I guarantee he's probably more than the Mets wanted to pay for a manager, particularly while they're still paying Mickey this year. That's number one. Number two, we had a support earlier in the week from Andy Martino about the bombshell candidate. Literally, they talked about how they're still going through this list. They did eight interviews the first round. They brought six of them back for second interviews. They brought back Girardi. Obviously, that's not happening anymore. They brought back Carlos Beltran. They brought back Eduardo Perez. Luis Rojas got a second interview. They also did a second interview to uh, Tim Bogart, the Nationals' first base coach. He's supposed to be flying in today to do an interview while between games of the World Series. Nationals up 2-0 as we do this recording. And Mike Shelton's also in the mix, the Minnesota Twin. Uh, uh, I forget what his title is. I think he's a bench coach or something with player personnel. Some, one of those two titles is Mike Shelton's title. But they basically, the ones they really eliminated from the first round were Skip Schumacher and Mike Bell. That did not accomplish much. And now there was a report out from Manny Martino that if they did not like somebody in this group, they would have potential of giving the job to a bombshell candidate who was not on anybody's radar. There's an all sorts of speculation out there on who that could be. John Heyman has basically ruled out David Wright. He's ruled out A-Rod because he texted A-Rod and A-Rod just sent him back five ha-ha-has. I don't like the fact that there's this mystery candidate in the mix because I get Brody wants to play close to the vest. I get this, but at the same time, you have a decent cross of experience here with the guys on your list. The fact that there might be somebody sneaking in from left field to get this job just screams of dysfunction. It screams that either Brody and Jeff are not on the same page about what they want, or they're trying to make a splash by in some way, and that these names they have are not sexy enough for the New York media. That scares me. I'm scared they're going to hire a guy and say, look, we got this guy, and he's our guy. And they'll get the back page for a few days, and he might not be the right guy. That's problem number two. Then problem number three I've seen came out on Wednesday from Mike Puma of the New York Post. He basically tweeted out the Mets might have yet another round of interviews. They might have a third round with some of these candidates because in spending all this time with these guys over two interviews, they may not have enough information yet to hire a manager, which to me, I have no idea what's going on here. The Mets had a jump on this process. Teams are starting to hire their managers. The Cubs hired David Ross. The Angels hired Joe Madden. The Padres made a hire this morning. The Phillies hired Girardi. And the Mets are still wandering around in the darkness trying to figure out who to hire. What is going on here? You should not take you this many rounds of interviews to narrow down your search. Usually when this kind of process happens, you have... The first round is the big round where you sort of do, well, technically let me the fourth round because first they did the phone interviews with the informal candidates trying to figure out who they wanted in. Then they had a round of in-person interviews where they had eight guys. Then another round of in-person interviews is going to be about six guys. Now they might talk about a third round of in-person interviews to cut it down to two to three people. Really? I get the idea of being thorough. This is a major hire and you want to be sure that you got it correct. But, the problem here is this. Are we reaching the point where this is paralysis by analysis here? Are we so fixated on having the exact right person that this process is taking a lot longer than it needs to be? 
And if I'm a candidate for this job, if I'm a Carlos Beltran or Eduardo Perez or Tim Bogar, I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? What is taking them so long to make up their minds? How much of these front office executives going to be involved in my job? And you wonder, I can start seeing guys like Beltran pull out of this job and say, you know what? I'm fine where I am. I'm good. You wonder that by dragging their feet so long, you start to scare off some of these candidates and say, you know what? They can't make a simple decision like this. Why would I work for them? That worries the hell out of me. And the Mets right now, they don't look like they know what they're doing. It feels like Brody Van Wagenen wants a certain type of person to be a collaborator with him, which is probably another reason they didn't want Girardi, because Girardi's probably going to demand more control than, than Brody wants to give up. And by extension, Jeff wants to give up. I get the concept of collaboration in this day and age, because the Yankees do it, the Red Sox do it, the Dodgers do it, all these teams do it, but they have much more experienced baseball people at this level than the Mets do. The Mets' two main people here, Brody Van Wagenen, a former agent who's had one year as a GM, and Jeff Wilpon. Those two want to be involved in day-to-day decision-making. That is terrifying. That explains why they want a first-time manager again. Now, are we saying that whoever they hire is going to be a disaster? No. For all we know, Carlos Beltran could be the next Alex Cora and lead the Mets to a championship in his first year. For all we know, he could be the next Mickey Calloway and be an epic flameout. Same goes for Juan Perez. Same goes for Tim Bowler or any of these guys. You just don't know. But at some point here, you have to make a decision. You can't stretch this out forever. The World Series is almost over, and the Mets still don't know what they're doing here with their skipper. You want to have that in place before the free agent period starts. That way, you can start planning the coaching staff. You can start working on organizational strategy, the new magic of reach out to the players, all that good stuff needs to happen. The longer the Mets put this off, the more concerned I am that they don't know what they're doing here. And that is terrifying. And that's my thoughts on the Mets at the moment. We'll see who they end up hiring. Um, either way, I got a sense that the fan base is not going to be thrilled with the choice. But up next, my conversation with John Schmelk right after this. Yeah, good interior D. Barrett goes at Lyles. Eurostep layup is good. Sweet move from the rookie. And Lyles, a Canadian player like Barrett. His versatility. Watch the dexterity, creativity here as it spurs. All right, we are back on the Just End the Suffering podcast. My guest today is a big uh, Knicks guy for WFAN. He's the host of the Bank Shot podcast. He also covers the Giants. John Schmelk is here with us today. John, welcome. How are you? Well, if you're hoping to end the suffering by talking about the Knicks, I'm not sure you're going to get where you want to go. Yeah, it's not going to get where I'm going to go. The Knicks have given me a lot of suffering over the years, but hopefully this is the start of a new direction here, a new beginning. Yeah, look, they'll be better. I don't think they're going to be in playoff contention, but they're certainly, I think, going to win more than 20 games if that gets you excited. It's a lot better. Same through 17 last year was miserable. So I think the big yeah. thing last last year, I mean, as a Nick fan, I knew they were not getting Durant and Irving, and they did an interesting thing with Plan B. So how do you like the pivot they made in free agency? I thought it was fine. Uh, I think they have to start showing progress and improving. So I thought they had to go out there and sign some players that helped win some games. I did think that was um, essential for their offseason plan. Do I think they could have executed that plan B a little bit better? Absolutely. Um, they had a few things that I thought they could have done better. They could, I think, use some of that cap space to, to, to bring in an, an extra player or uh, an extra draft pick or two in upcoming seasons. But, you know, the guys they got will help them win. 
but I think they almost have too many. And I think there's at some point a uh, diminishing returns when you have so many guys that are going to want playing time and you can't possibly play all of them and keep them happy and get the most out of them. Yeah, for sure. I, I know most of those guys got one-year deals guaranteed. Yeah. And the only one who got more than one guaranteed year is Julius Randle, who I think is going to be probably the centerpiece of their offense alongside Barrett and, uh, and the company. So what do you think of the Julius Randle pickup? Yeah, I, I like the Randall signing. I think you had to bring in either him or D'Angelo Russell last offseason. And you got Randall on a much cheaper and shorter deal than Russell signed with the Warriors after that sign and trade. So I think that made sense. And I think he will be the centerpiece of the offense. I think he has an outside chance to make the all-star team. I think he'll be 20-plus 10, 20-plus uh, points, 10 rebounds. I think he'll be an efficient scorer, shoot over 50% from the field. So, yeah, I, I think the Randall signing was good, and I think he will be their number one option offensively. Yeah, he would take some pressure off R.J. Barrett, and I'm a very skeptical Knicks fan. I've seen a lot of draft picks go haywire over the years, so can you tell me why R.J. Barrett's going to be different? I think he has a very high floor. Uh, how What his ceiling is, because I don't think he's the best athlete in the world, and he's not a great shooter yet, so I don't know how high his ceiling is, but he's big, he's strong, he knows how to get where he wants to go on the floor, he finishes well around the basket, he's actually a pretty good passer, and he's already, I think, overcome some of those tendencies at Duke that were worrying. He doesn't. His shot selection has been pretty good, and he hasn't been a selfish player. He's moved the ball, and his, and his defense has actually been okay. So I think those are good signs. Do I ever think he's going to be a perennial all-star? Probably not. Will he make a couple all-star teams along the way? Maybe. Uh, it's all going to depend on how good of a shooter he becomes. His shot is going to be the skill that determines what he is at the end of the day. I saw in the preseason they're experimenting with him a little bit at the point guard position. Do you think that's something that they could do from time to time with him, where have him be the be the bring up the ball with bigger lineups? I do, and again, I wouldn't play him at point guard though. I think you play him at small forward, but let him be the initiator, which is fine. That's what. And again, I'm not comparing him as a player. That's what the Cavaliers do with LeBron James, right? They had two guards out there with him. He played small forward, but he was the guy that led the offense. Because to me, you assign positions based on the player you're able to guard. R.J. Barrett cannot guard opposing point guards. He's not quick enough. He's not fast enough. That's not going to work. So that's something that they're going to have to figure out. If they do want him to be the initiator on offense, what they're going to do defensively at the point guard position. Yeah, speaking of the point guard position, they have a couple options there. I mean, neither Elfrey Payton or uh, Dennis said you really wowed everybody in the preseason. Frank Nelkeen, they picked up his option, but he's probably not really a point guard offensively at this point. So where do you think was he getting the most uh, time with that position? Well, that's the thing, though. If, if you're going to put him, Neil Keenan into a starting lineup with an Art, with a Julius Randle who's going to have the ball a lot, with a Marcus Morris who's going to have the ball a lot, with an R.J. Barrett who's going to you know be the initiator on offense – you don't need a player to play the point guard position that is going to be a guy that handles the ball a lot and runs the offense. It's just not necessary. So I think a guy like Neil Aquino makes sense if you're going to have a starting lineup with Morris, Barrett, and Randall because you don't need a Dennis Smith out there dribbling around. You don't need an Alfred Payton you know, being an initiator because you have R.J. Barrett out there. So I think it's more a matter of figuring out fit. Dennis Smith has the most talent of the three in terms of upside because of his explosive athletic ability, but I still think he's working back from that back injury. Where's his shot going to be? Much like Barrett, that's his skill that's going to kind of determine what his future is in the league. So I think depending on who you're going to have out there with the point guard is going to depend on which guy you want to play. It's about fit as much as it is about talent. It is a lot about fit, and I know they have a lot of new guys in this team. Who is somebody you think hasn't gotten a lot of attention you think is going to play a big role this year? It's a good question. Um, 
I would like it to be a Damian Dotson because I think he gives shooting and defense two things that are essential in this league, and I think the Knicks lack a little bit. So I would like it to be him. I think it'll probably end up being maybe an Alonzo Trier who can score in bunches, and apparently David Fisdale is considering making him one of the starters uh, to start the year. So if I had to guess it'd be him, I, but I really think it should be a guy like Dotson or a guy like Wayne Ellington, two guys that can stretch the floor. Yeah, and I feel like this team is very deep at the four or five spots, but they don't have a ton of shooting. I feel like that might be an issue. No, it is. And I think when you try to build these lineups, you got to spread the floor in the NBA. The way you score efficiently is by hitting threes and by getting to the hoop. The Knicks have guys that can play in the paint, get to the free throw line. They do not have enough three-point shooters, and that is something that could haunt them over the course of the year. I agree. Yeah, so speaking of uh, the young guys, one guy we have not mentioned yet is Mitchell Robinson, who I feel like yet was the biggest positive out of the Knicks last year. This year, they got a lot of guys to play in front of him with uh, Bobby Portis, Julius Randle, Taj Gibson. So how many do you think they're going to give him minutes? How many do you think he's going to get per game? Well, they better. He's their most promising young player. Uh, he should be the starting center. There should be no question about that. Uh, he's a, one of the best rim protectors in the league. He's a shot blocker. He's a good finisher around the basket on lobs and pick and rolls. He needs to play 25 to 28 minutes a game, 30 minutes a game, and be the starter at center when that ankle's healthy, period. Yeah, yeah, no so- questions asked. I agree with you on that because I just it just frustrates me bringing all these guys in. I know Fizdale is balancing, winning, and keeping the vets happy and developing. So I just ho- hope his mates don't get short shrifted. Well, I mean, but if you want to win, you play the better player. Yeah. I mean, Mitchell Robinson's better than Bobby Portis. He's better than Taj Gibson. That's why he'd be playing as much as it is the future. Yeah, 100% agree with you there. And another guy we didn't really touch on yet was Kevin Knox, who struggled through his rookie years. I feel like he, they gave him more than he could handle at this point in his career. He's going to have to fight for his minutes yep. now with the additions they brought in. So what do you think we get out of Kevin Knox year two? I've liked what I've seen so far, especially with his finishing around the basket. I don't understand why they insisted on playing R.J. Barrett like 40 minutes a game in the preseason. Let Knox play a little bit more. Uh, I think you'll see – I think what the hope is, if you're a Knicks fan, is that Knox plays well enough over the course of the year – that a green lights the team to trade Marcus Morris at the trade deadline, and then Knox could maybe move into that starting lineup once you get to the second half of the year. But until then, I think you're looking at, you know, 20, 25 minutes a game at most for him. Yeah, I think some of those guys you do mention, I think they are going to get moved at the deadline, guys like the Marcus Morris and the Taj Gibson's of the world. I feel like that'd be a smart thing for them to do is just try and win right now. If they can't, just chip out what you can, get some extra draft base, get some assets, try and build going forward here. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if you're going to get ones for those guys either, by the way, but you get what you can. Yeah, even second-round picks. I mean, the Rockets got James Harden in a package that had a bunch of second-round picks in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, last year, Nikolai Miritich got traded for four twos. So there are deals like that that can help you. Mitchell Robinson was a second-round pick. Trier was an undrafted free agent. They are valuable pieces in in ways. You're not going to get superstars with them more often than not but they can certainly help your flexibility moving forward. Yes, they can help your flexibility moving forward. And moving forward with them, I feel like this year, we all expect they're not going to make the playoffs here. I feel like they're better, but do you think that David Fisdale is the right coach for this team long-term? I don't know that yet. I think this year will tell you a lot and how he manages these lineups and how he mixes and matches these players. My thing with Fisdale so far is he doesn't seem to know how to balance a lineup with defense, shooting, and playmaking. You need those three things in every lineup. You have to prioritize all three, figure out how to get all three on the floor, and I don't think he does a very good job of doing that. Yeah, he's got a lot of work to do this year, and also I feel like this year might be a referendum on the uh, Scott Perry and Steve Mills pairing because they've gotten a long rope from James Dolan, and he's typically not very patient. So if there's not a decent amount of progress, it made you wonder if they're on the hot seat too. 
I mean, they've only been here two years. Uh, Mills maybe a little bit more than that, but but Perry only two. So I I would be surprised that if, if anything happens to those two guys, especially considering Steve Mills is kind of one of Dolan's guys. And James Dolan, when he has his guys, he doesn't like to fire him. I mean, he just doesn't. He's even kept Isaiah Thomas around the organization. You know, you just go through the list. Steve Mills is one of his guys, so I don't think that's going to change at any point. And I think you have to be leery of changing general managers too quickly. That's how your organization gets into messy spots where you're, you know, changing direction. You don't believe in the guys the prior group signed, and and frankly, you run into trouble. Yeah, for sure. And for, let's wrap up the next real quick. I'm looking for optimism this year. So, what is the best case scenario, in your opinion, for the next this year? Best case scenario, 32 to 35 wins. Uh, I have them at 28. That's my prediction. Uh, that, that's going to get published on WFN.com today. Um, I thought they could get over 30 if Dennis Smith had a breakout year. i just not very confident that's going to happen based on what I've seen so far. So right now, that's where I'm at. I think 28 is a very realistic number. I would take 28 if R.J. Barrett's having a very good rookie year, and I feel a lot better about my situation going forward. No, look, Bill, you're right, and that's the thing. This year isn't as much about the wins as it's seeing the young guys on your roster you have on the contract improving and showing that they can be long-term pieces as, as, as part of the team. All right, we talked about the Knicks a little bit. I know you also cover the Giants as well, so I want to ask you like a couple of questions about Daniel Jones. So obviously he has the, sure. the uh, bang-up start to his career. He gets off to the hot start against Tampa. feels he's gone backwards every game since then. As somebody who's been watching the team like very closely, so what have you been your impressions of Daniel Jones? Well, he's, he's played better defenses, and he's lost some of the guys around him too, which is part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, he's look, and he, he talked about it this week. Pat Shermer talked about it this week. They've turned the ball over way too much. I mean, Daniel Jones has, you know, seven interceptions and five fumbles over the course of his five starts. You're not going to win many games doing that. And they know they have to clean that up. But that's a rookie quarterback. He's made some spectacular throws. He made some great passes where you're like, wow, he's terrific. But at the same time, you make some plays where you're like, oh, boy, what, what are you doing there, kid? But that's what you get with a rookie quarterback. That's, that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, I feel like the worst thing that could have happened to him was that Tampa game where he came out and just lit the world on yeah. fire because everyone says raised the expectation for him and forgot that he's a rookie. He's going to have his moments where he's struggling and he's going to see defense he's never seen before and make mistakes. That's what happens to all these young quarterbacks. Absolutely. And, and I think people get you know their head over their ears a little bit. And I think that's kind of how it goes. It happens in every sport when guys get off to good starts. But look, this first year is always going to be rocky for him. And it's a tough transition to go from college to the pros. Baker Mayfield's still making that transition. He's in his second year. So these things take time. Yeah, not everyone's a Patrick Mahomes who just comes in and lights the world on fire. Yeah, remember, Patrick Mahomes didn't play his first year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He didn't. He sat behind Alex Smith the entire first year and only played the last game of the season. Exactly. So, look, people are going to have to be patient here. You know, Rome is not built in a day, and quarterbacks are not made in a day either. Yeah, do you think they've done a good enough job putting weapons around him to have, give him, put him in a position to succeed? Because at times it feels like the skill position group doesn't necessarily do the best job for him. When they're healthy, yeah. I mean, when if you have Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Evan Ingram, and Saquon Barkley out there, that's more than enough for Daniel Jones to succeed. Yeah, that's fair, because the Patriot game was tough for him because he didn't have anybody. I thought he didn't play badly in that game either. No, look, and that was the thing. It's the Patriots. He didn't have much of a shot. He was missing. The only weapon he had was Tate. No Shepard, no Ingram, no Barkley. So that was a really tough spot. Once that those groups get healthy, he has enough to work with for sure. Yeah, and they play Detroit this week. And then the Lions, I feel like they're much better in their record. Indicates they are 2-3-1. They usually could be 5-1, and one, considering they've blown a couple of games and the refs take one away from them. So what do you think the Giants are going to look like in Detroit this week? Yeah, look, their defense has fallen apart the last few weeks. They gave up 500 yards to the Vikings last week. 
Uh, I always come back to the Giants' defense, though. I think, you know, Matthew Stafford's an explosive quarterback. He's dangerous, and he's going to try to make big plays down the field. So the Giants' defense is going to have to hold up. I think the Giants' offense will score enough points, and they have to protect the football, like I mentioned earlier. But can the defense slow down with a pretty darn good Lions offense? I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think the big match in that game is the secondary with uh, Janoris Jenkins and uh, Deion- and all the secondary guys de- matching up with Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones. Those two have been matchup problems for most of the Lions opponents this year. Yeah, I want to throw T.J. Hopkins into the mix to a tight end, and the Giants play a lot of zones, so it's just going to be a matter of whether or not they can be disciplined in their zones and whether or not the Lions can kind of find those holes because, you know, the Giants have kind of adopted a, a bend-but-don't-break kind of mentality on defense. And that's kind of what they've been doing. So they just have to make sure they tackle well and they play well situationally on third down and in the red zone, keep the score in the 20s. And, you know, the offense, you hope that they can continue giving the Lions the type of issues they've had the last couple of weeks like they did against the Vikings uh, in week seven. All right, there you have it. John Schmelk from WFAN. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do you want everybody know how to find on social media and how to listen to the Bank Shot podcast? Yes, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Schmelk, S-C-H-M-E-E-L-K. Uh, the Bank Shots on WFN.com and Radio.com, also on all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also uh, find my written work on WFN.com and on Giants.com. All right, John, thanks for all the time today. Once again, I really appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Happy to help. All right, there you have it. That was John Schmelk from WFAN talking about the New York Knicks and a little New York Giants talk as well. Up next, the two-minute drill, where I offer my thoughts into what the Jets should be doing at the trade deadline right after this. They'll split up. Here's some pressure on Darnold. Quickly gets it up, and it is picked off by Devin McCourty. Here they go again. You can't hype this defense enough. 15th interception on the season. He sees it. Darnold's got to understand. You can't just throw it blindly and high. Good job there by McCourt. All right, we are back with the six two-minute drill. That call is her, courtesy of ESPN's Joe Tastor and Booger McFarland from the disaster of the Jets' money at loss to the Patriots. And before I dive into the deadline discussion, I want to get something out about this game. This game was a train wreck for the Jets. Literally a train wreck. And going to this, the Pats were banged up. They were dealing with issues on the receiving core, the issues along the offensive line. I was stupid. I think, you know what? They'll be in this football game. And that hope went right out the window in the first quarter when the Pats right down the field, third down after third down after third down into the end zone, touchdown. Then the next sequence, Darnold throws the first of many picks and he is seeing ghosts and the Jets were never in this football game after the coin toss. This is, again, an indictment on how terrible a coach Adam Gase is because... The defense, for the most part, considering how many bad field positions they were in because of the offense is turning it over, they did not play as bad as the stat line would indicate. The offense was a complete and utter failure. Adam Gase, again, no ability to help his quarterback here. He could see that Sam Darnold was completely lost. The Patriots really just walking up the line, sending a safety or a corner or a linebacker, walking that person right up. They would come right through for a shot at the quarterback. Where is the adjustment? Where is the change in protection to try and give him more time to throw? Where are the screens or the draws to take the Patriots' aggressive and turn it against them? Instead, he kept on calling deep shots to Robbie Anderson. You can't call those if he has three seconds to throw the football. 
Throws plays and needs seven, eight seconds. If you can't block it up, you have to change it up, and he is not doing that. And that Dallas game looks like an aberration right now because they looked pathetic. And it's a shame because the key to this hire was he was to get the most out of Sam Darnold. And if he can't, what are we doing here? Why are we wasting our breath? But this is put the Jets in a one in five hole. They're not going to the playoffs, despite the easy schedule Ian Sachs brought up on our NFL uh, pick segment in the last podcast. They're going nowhere. So the time has come for Joe Douglas to sell off some pieces. And I'll admit, there is not much to sell here because Mike McCaggan such a horrendous job drafting outside of the top rounds. He drafted Jamal Adams, fantastic player. He drafted Sam Darnold, franchise quarterback. He drafted Quinn Williams this year. Looks like he'd be a good player. Drafted Marcus May, good player. Apart from that, not much from Mike McCagden's drafts are proving to be any of value. And that's left the Jets a very thin roster. It's top-heavy, no depth, and this could be a multi-year rebuilding job for Joe Douglas, which is why he was smart to command the six-year contract because if he commanded just a four-year deal, they could have just fired him after two like they've been doing for a long time and just basically recycle again with six years he has a long-term plan to build the franchise out and that should start here shipping out some pieces that have some value the biggest one here is Leonard Williams because again Leonard Williams did not make many plays on Monday night you got to hit on Tom Brady but there seems to be a disconnect between how the fans and the media view Leonard Williams and how the coaches around the league view Leonard Williams Leonard Williams all we hear about is he draws double teams Coach have to account for him. I'm sick of that argument with Leonard Williams because you're telling me that guys like Khalil Mack and Aaron Donald don't get double teamed? They're getting double teamed or triple teamed every play. They're still making an impact. Leonard does nothing. But what the Jets can do, and apparently they've been getting phone calls on him, they should capitalize on the perception around the league that he can be a difference maker in the right situation. They're not bringing him back. They're not paying him $15 million next year to come back. They need to trade him. And you're not hanging a first-round pick for him or a second. But can you get like a three and a five for him? Or a four and a six? If you can get multiple draft picks for him, you take it and you run. Because the only way this franchise gets rebuilt long-term is with better drafting. And through the years of trying to mortgage picks, they have been left with very little assets going forward. So I would take the chance to collect as many picks as I can and give you more chances to get things right because no one's saying having more picks means that you are going to draft better, but it gives you more chances to hit on a player. It gives you more chances to hit on that offensive lineman in the third round or that fifth-round receiver like Antonio Brown was for the Steelers all those years ago. The more chips you have, the more chance you have to hit. That should be a big priority here with these moves. I would trade him out. And honestly, considering the price of some of these receivers have been getting in the trade market, I would send Robbie Anderson out too. Robbie Anderson is a good player, good undrafted free agent fine by Mike McCagnin, but at this point... He is kind of limited in what his potential is. You don't know if he can be a true top receiver. He was invisible on Monday night against the Patriots. Stephon Gilmore took completely out of the game. And I guess Stephon Gilmore is the best corner in the league, one of them anyway. But 
with Robbie. You have to think about this in the sense, is he getting any better than what he is right now? Is he getting more than just a guy who stretches the field? Can he run complete route trees? If he isn't, I think you move on from him while the demand is high. I mean, the Patriots just traded picks away to get Mohamed Sanu off the Falcons. The, the 49ers traded two picks to the Broncos to get Emmanuel Sanders. Considering Robbie Anderson's speed and his ability to beat defenses vertically, he should get you multiple draft picks, and I think i do it. If you're getting a good offer for Robbie Anderson, and remember, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. you got to pay him if you want to keep him. I trade him off. I think he is replaceable. I think a good organization can scout well and find options to replace Robbie Anderson. I mean, they have a guy on the team right now, Vincent Smith, who we saw score the long touchdown against the Eagles in Week 5. That guy has the potential to stress the field at a much cheaper price point than Robbie Anderson will have. If you do that, KJ isn't Crowder. Chris Herndon coming back will help Sam Darnold. You should have plenty of weapons either way, but I would look to capitalize on Robbie Anderson's value while it's there. I think the key here is just whatever you can get something for that's not vital to the long-term future of this franchise, you deal. If somebody wants Kelvin Beach him, I'd listen because they clearly want to try and make Chuma a dog with a long-term left tackle. If somebody wants Kelvin Beach him, I'd let them have him. Uh, Kelakai Osemele would have been somebody to fits this category if not for the bizarre injury saga we have going on with him. Ryan Khalil, maybe somebody wants him, you give him a shot. Whatever is not mounted to the floorboard here is part of the long-term future. That means no moving on to you guys like Sam Darnold, Le'Veon Bell, C.J. Mosley, pieces like that are not being moved. But these pieces that might be free at the end of the year, if you can get something for them now, take it and run. Because you need all the help you can get and waiting till 2021 for comp picks is not a good strategy. If you have a chance to get help now, take it. And I think Joe Douglas will take it. So it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing with the deadline looming next week. And that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guests, uh, John Schmelk, for calling in to talk all about the Knicks and the and the Giants on this podcast. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my aforementioned look at my concerns in the Mets managerial search, check out the blog or justsendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just go there, search for Just and the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can subscribe and find all of the old episodes, including the two other ones I did this week, our Watchmen premiere recap with John Stanko, and the regular episode where I talked more next with Rob Wolkenbrod and did some NFL picks with my good buddy Ian Sachs. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well in order to help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me the hashtag paralysisbyanalysis. We made it to the end of this week's episode. Next week, we'll have an NFL midseason preview. That's going to be fun. We'll catch you up on what's going on in the World Series. Maybe the Mets will have a manager by then. Maybe. If not, we'll see what's going on there do some picks, and more. Until then, hope you have a better week than Jets fans. Ah!